Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Welcome to episode 31. I am thrilled that you are here. One of the great things about this show, and I'm very grateful for this, is that I've had the opportunity to interview people that I have respected for so many years. And I was trying not to act like a complete fangirl during this interview, uh, but I've been a fan of Marianne Williamson for at least a decade. You might know her from her mega bestseller, A Return to Love, She's written many books. Seven out of her 12 published books have been New York Times bestsellers, and four of these have been number one. But before she was Marianne Williamson, New York Times bestseller, she was Marianne who was suffering with depression. And she shares her story and gives hope to so many of those who struggle with depression. The one thing I have to say off the bat, if is that if you are struggling with depression or you have struggled with depression, you are not alone. And it's important to remember that because depression can make you feel so alone. It's so isolating. But according to the National Institute of Mental Health, 16 million adults had at least one major depression episode since 2012. And many people suffer with depression and don't get help. And I I think the numbers that we're seeing about depression are are a bit low. I don't think we can count the people who've had moments like this. And even if you haven't struggled with clinical depression, we've all had moments in our lives where we've just had a really low low. And when we're in that low, we don't know what to do with ourselves. We don't know what to do next. And Marianne Williamson just shines a, a beautiful light on those moments and gives us hope. The other thing that I admire about her is that she's very vocal when it comes to politics. She's a former congressional candidate in Southern California. And right now we're living in a time where a lot of crazy is going on in the world. And this politics at this time are just so intense. No matter who you're supporting, if you raise your voice, there's criticism. No matter who you're supporting, no matter what opinion you have, you say it out loud in this political environment, and there's a lot of criticism. Now, in moments like these, it's really easy to want to be quiet, to want to shy away from these conversations, but the world needs your voice. The world needs your courage to speak up on what you think is right. And so I loved asking Marianne questions about that, about how we can have the courage to really speak up. I think you're going to enjoy this show. A quick reminder that the sponsor is thetappingsolution.com. That's my wonderful day job. My passion is tapping. You can check out more at thetappingsolution.com and even download a free tapping meditation. It's right there on the home page. If you enjoy this show, spread it, share it with your friends, share it with your family. It is an act of love, so spread the love. Enjoy. Marianne, thank you so much for being with us. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jessica. Well, I am so excited for to have you on the show and for many reasons, but one of those reasons is that we are talking about something that I feel like a lot of people don't address because they feel uncomfortable addressing, and yeah. that is really talking about just the depth of suffering and depression. So I want to start by asking you if you could share with us a bit about your story. You wrote in your latest book that you were diagnosed with clinical depression twice. How has that experience led you to this work? Well, first of all, I want to say that we're way too precious with that term, clinical depression. Mm. All that it means is that somebody basically gave a clinical diagnosis. But there's no blood test for depression. This is a questionnaire. Anybody can see what the depression questionnaire is. Just look that up on the Internet. And any of us would look at that and go, wow, I've, I've had some of those sometimes. Um, it's not like a blood test where you either have the infection or you don't. You either have leukemia or you don't. So that's the first thing. This appropriation of the word depression as a medical issue is mm. really <clears throat> the conversation that I think we need to be having because there is a spectrum of normal human despair. Having said that, that normal human despair is simply a part of life. It is a spiritual issue. It is a psychological and emotional issue that need not be medicalized. Having said that, I do know that there is a, uh, is a phenomenon, and I've been there twice, that is different. And, and so for that, in terms of that, I do understand. But I want to say that even though I've been through painful experiences in my life, I have lost parents, I've lost the best friend, I've lost my sister, I've been through the normal heartaches that people have, have been through, I've been through... <clears throat> a divorce, I've been through uh, bitter breakups, I've been through financial failure, I've been through professional disappointment and loss. And these things are being treated these days. The pain of those things is not a mental illness. Mm -hmm. So that's really what the point of the book is, that we need not put a medical model. We've, we've, we've started to medicalize normal human despair. And that need not be done. Now, having said that, there is this thing called depression. But depression is not uh, schizophrenia. Depression is not bipolar disease. It is its own situation. But you're absolutely correct. And in this book, I question the medicalizing even of that. In my own life, what happened to me was a personal tragedy at the end of my 20s. And um, I look back on that time as having been while a very, very painful year of my life, also the year during which I feel now that I became who I am in some ways. It is definitely an experience, as I talk about in the book, um, that delivered me definitely to my career, um, but more importantly than that, delivered me to myself. Del I became a much more, I, I, the things I learned from that experience, I learned not to take life for granted, not to take love for granted, not to treat life like it's a joke, because it's not. I learned to take other people's feelings very, very seriously, at least as seriously as my own. I learned that life goes on. I learned that God is merciful. I learned how important it is to atone for your mistakes, and I learned how important it is to forgive other people for theirs. And now, that's... Do you, do you believe those lessons wouldn't have been possible without that dark 
those dark moments in your life? Well, that's a very good question, Jessica. I am not trying to glamorize or idealize suffering here. And your question is very important. Do I think that, that, that suffering is necessary to learn these things? Absolutely not. But do I think that more of us than not take the root of messing up rather than the root of wisdom <laughs> right out the gate? Absolutely. Okay. And I think the point ultimately is not how we got to wisdom, but whether or not we got to wisdom. And I think, you know, there's no real ultimate failure in life except a situation you fail to learn from. Right. And so I, I, I look at the times in, in, in my own life um, and in those my own two periods that would definitely be called, you know, today they'd be called depression, but they would be called uh, traditionally dark nights of the soul. Um, they were my fault more than other people's fault. Um, and I, and I think that's one of the reasons why you don't want to medicalize. You don't want to short circuit these, these uh, experiences and the pain of these experiences because you are having the, the pain comes from what you're having to learn. You know, sometimes the pain, you know, in, in emotional healing, just like in certain physical activities, you don't get the gain without the pain. So my pain might be, how could I have been so stupid? My pain might have been, why did I act that way? My pain might be, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? And if I don't look at that, and if I don't realize the places where I need to atone for my errors and commit to being a different person next time I'm out there, how, how will I then grow in wisdom? How will I grow in my own personhood so that on the other side of this, I'm not creating so much suffering for myself and other people? Right. So a lot of the tears we cry because we're depressed are very important tears. And we've come up with this thing in the last few decades of, of, of people claiming to, people putting this artificial line and saying, if you cry this many tears for this long, it's normal. If you cry more than that for a longer period of time, you quote unquote, need treatment. We mm. really need to resist that, that story. Because, you know, when I was growing up, if somebody had lost a loved one, a year was considered normal, a normal period of grief. If you And if you from a spiritual and psychological perspective, if you have 45 tears to cry, crying 17 is not enough. Mm -hmm. So these things have to come up in order to come out. You know, a lot of times, you know, even dealing with something like tapping, right, and all that stuff that people are into, everybody these days is really into the genius of the body. Well, if the body is such a genius, why are we not applying that same perspective to how many tears the body needs to cry? Yes, absolutely. And you know, what I love about what I think works so well with tapping and what I'm reading in your book is so much of it is based on giving the suffering a voice, giving yourself a space where you can listen to it because you actually have to admit it. Uh, but before we go deeper, because I want to hear from you how we can better listen and learn from our suffering, I want to go another direction and talk about you wrote that um, our civilization has an immature and neurotic obsession with always trying to be happy. And I, I see this. And what happens is we then shame ourselves when we're not happy. We think we're, we're not doing it right, especially those who, like my audience, they listen to podcasts, they read books, they attend self-help events. And then when they are suffering with a problem, they think they've somehow failed. Right. Exactly. 
So can you speak to that audience, to the audience who, who put so much pressure on personal development that they don't give themselves the space to uh, honor their suffering? Right. Well, what I say is that that's complete poppycock and propaganda mm-hmm. that just suffered on the cross and that the, the Israelites suffered as slaves in Egypt under the Pharaoh. And Buddha realized that was his first noble truth, that life is suffering. So all the great spiritual systems speak to the reality of human suffering. So this is this new aberration, this be happy, be happy, be happy all the time. If you are, if, if things are very sad, let's, let's take what's happening in the world today. Um, the, the planet itself environmentally is in terrible trouble. If we don't collectively change our behavior patterns, the whole ecosystem could implode within 20 years. We have terrible income inequality in our country, which is causing a lot of economic stress for a lot of people. We have out-of-control terrorism. We have uh, a, an issue with race and the police that's really become critical. It's like if you're looking at the world today and not upset and depressed and disturbed, what's wrong with you? You must not be looking. So this artificial emotional flatline uh, is nothing to brag about. You know, would we be better off if the abolitionists just hadn't gotten so upset? Would we say to Susan B. Anthony today, girl, you know, you just create drama wherever you go. You know, sometimes it is appropriate. Sometimes your neuroses are best delineated by what doesn't make you uh, upset than by what does make you upset. So there's nothing to be uh, self-congratulatory about that you are so dissociated from the heartbreak of, uh, of, of life that you don't know how to be upset about it. You know, these tears are the way we get to the other side. Grief, psychic pain conveys a message, just like physical pain. There's a pain for a reason. So if my leg is broken, I don't just take morphine. I have to reset the bone. And if my, 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 my heart is in pain, you know, my, my emotions, then I have to reset the thinking that both caused the suffering and keeps me from healing. So... Grief is part of the psychic immune system. And just like when, if you have a bunch of bruises on your body, you're going to have to be gentle with your body and give yourself time to heal. The same is true uh, with um, psychic pain. You're going to have to be gentle, give yourself time to heal, and actually go through the discomfort, which are things like where I messed up, my part in this. Um, You know, I know when my sister died, you know, it was interesting my sister died at a very young age. She was only 44 years old. And I remember saying when she died that my deepest sorrow was not, for me personally, my deepest sorrow, if I was honest with myself, was not that I had not known my sister longer, but that I had not gotten to know her better. Mm-hmm. And so what I learned from losing my parents, my sister, my best friend is I learned not to take love and life for granted. I, I get it viscerally. This, this, this thing is a temporary ride. This is not going to go on forever. I mean, it goes on spiritually forever. I learned from those experiences to suck the juice out of life every day, you know. Um, so let's talk about the news for a second. I mean, this book couldn't come out at a more perfect time because it seems it just seems like right now their tensions are so high. There is so much going on. And, you know, you, you just mentioned that 
it's important to feel this. You know, you talk about in your book that by numbing our pain, we're not taking action. We're not we're not able to um, move things forward. That being said, you also wrote that hope is born of participating in hopeful solutions. What advice do you have for someone who sees the suffering but doesn't know what the hopeful solution is, what they could do to make it better? Well, in today's world, that is simply never factually accurate. Mm -hmm. You can get on the internet and there is not one subject about which there are not already uh, groups um, and individuals doing great work having to do with um, with creating an alternative, creating a solution. And something happens when you participate. You know, if, if, if you're upset about the environment, become active with one of those environmentalist groups. If you're upset about whatever it is, get involved with some level of service, some level of volunteerism. And sometimes people say, well, I'm just too depressed. I can't get myself out. But, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book, um, I talk about times when I remember even when I was upset a couple years ago and I had some counseling sessions to do. And I remember times when, you know, I wanted to just lie in bed all day. And sometimes I'm not saying there aren't times to do that, but I would, let's say, have a two o'clock appointment. I, I had to show up for other people. And it, it, there's something in the, the psyche is so brilliant that my psyche knew I had to show up for someone else. My subconscious knew that. And I was able to do that. And then after that person left, I was that much more, I was, I was further ahead. I'm not saying I wasn't still in the period of my grief, but I, I, every time I showed up for someone outside myself, you know, showing up for someone outside yourself is reaching to the holiness within yourself because your true self is not just you alone. And part of the problem with depression is that it can tempt us to isolate. And that's never the answer, because the answer is in finding God. And God is that through which we experience our brotherhood and unity with other people. So that's why I, I talk. I don't just talk about not short circuiting your pain, but I talk about the spiritual solutions and, and how owning our own errors, atoning for them, forgiving other people for theirs, those spiritual principles that alone transform our pain. Right. I want to talk about those, but I have to address what you just said, because I think it's so great. It was a big aha moment, this idea that once we start to take action, there is something that we can do. And I think what tends to happen is we get overwhelmed because we feel like a problem is too big, especially when we're looking at the world and what we're going through as a whole. Uh, and I find this even in, in people's lives when I work with clients. Not, let's not talk about the environment. Let's talk about simply a project, right? Someone wants to finish a book or do something. A lot of times they feel overwhelmed, but once they take that first step, that's when the clarity begins to unfold. So I would really invite the listeners to let that sink in a little bit of just being able to take that first step of action if we're feeling heartbroken about a certain situation we see going on in the world. Absolutely. Once again, hope is born of participation and hopeful solutions. Right. So Marianne, I want to talk about then spiritual healing, because I mean, this is what this this book is about, and what you what you teach, and you know, you write that it that spiritual healing is a work. It's not passive, but it's like it's active. You are co-creating with God. Can you tell us more about spiritual healing and spiritual principles? Well, 
when Buddha realized that life was suffering, it didn't, that was not the end of his realizations. He brought forth what he calls the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, right concentration, right effort, right speech, right mindedness, right livelihood, and so forth. And in the Old Testament, uh, it wasn't just that God sent Moses to uh, deliver the Israelites from, from slavery. He then gave the Ten Commandments to uh, Moses and said, now this is the way I want you guys to live. And of course, the crucifixion then led to the resurrection. So in all of these great religious spiritual stories, it starts with an acknowledgement of our suffering. And then it moves into the phase where God shows his hand. So Buddha uh, starts with the realization of life is suffering. He himself has to struggle with the, the demon, the god of illusion. And then it ends up with his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in the state of nirvana. In the Old Testament, you start with the uh, suffering Israelites and it ends with their deliverance into the promised land. In the New Testament, it begins with the story, that part of it begins with the story of the crucifixion or the suffering of Jesus, which then culminates in the resurrection. Now, you can use the words nirvana, enlightenment, promised land, resurrection, and self-actualization, inner peace. They all speak to the same thing. And that is the consciousness wherein we have risen above and transformed our suffering and reached a different place in our own minds and in our own lives. So you start with that. You start with the realization that that is the journey. And so you contextualize your suffering within a spiritual container. You don't just see it as a disease where you're going to take a pill to suppress or eradicate the symptoms. You realize this is a dark night of the soul. This is the crucible wherein you can become, if that is your prayer, a better person because of this, a wiser person because of this, a person more humble, more grateful, more available to love and be loved, more sensitive to the pain of others because of this. So that's number one. Number two is that that deliverance exists. You know, that's why, you know, God sent Moses. I mean, the whole, all the great religious spiritual stories speak to the suffering of the world and speak to the power of God to deliver us from that suffering. So what's the point? The point is to learn to meditate because the consciousness of the world repudiates love, therefore repudiates our capacity for inner peace. It constantly bombards us. We are constantly being barraged with meaningless input, it, it ranges from the meaningless to the insane to the heinous. And what that does is it drags us mentally into these regions of chaos and randomness. And the, the soul cannot feel comfortable there. So of course we're depressed. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book, as you know, Jessica, is that we have, have bought into the psychotherapeutic model where everybody thinks it's, it's tending to think that their suffering is theirs alone. Mm. I'm upset because of my divorce. I'm upset because of my business failing. I'm upset because of my this or my that. When really, if you take a step back, we're all depressed because of the same miasma of fear-based thinking that dominates the planet. And what particular form that takes in anybody's life is not the, is not the issue. The issue is that we all need this transformation of our, of our thinking to that of faith and love. As long as I identify myself with my body, then my material circumstances will seem to be both the source of my happiness and the source of my despair. 
But once I, I, I shift, the enlightened shift is to spirit identification so that you're not so attached to your material circumstances. You know that they are neither the source of your, your happiness nor ultimately the source of your sadness, that the only source of, of happiness is our capacity to love and be loved. And the only source of our despair is our inability to find that love. Why is it so important for us to find meaning within our suffering? Because, without, because we are beings who crave meaning. We are not machines. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in the experience. We are psychically in pain in the regions of randomness and chaos. When, when you live and you don't even know what it all means. Why am I even on this earth? What am I doing? What's the point of it all? That is torturous. That is mentally torturous. But when you begin to realize this happened because I made a mistake, I need to atone for this. Or this happened because someone else made a mistake, I need to learn to forgive them. This happened because generations come and generations go, and I need to develop my capacity to know that life is eternal. That's the meaning of things. The meaning of things is, where is the love here? Where was the love lost, and where can I put it back into the situation? So what we have to talk about next is is forgiveness, because as we begin to have these conversations with ourselves and we begin to realize that, you know, I, I had something to do with this or uh, my anger towards someone else had something to do with this, there can be a lot of shame and, and self-blame and that can also spiral out of control. So when how do we kind of go through this process without going into that spiral and what what does forgiveness play in all of this? Well, your question, your, you know, your question is great, Jessica. You, I, I appreciate it because you, you obviously, you know, you really uh, discern what the deeper issues are here. There is such a thing as healthy shame. There's such a thing as remorse and conscience and only a sociopath doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you yeah, don't yeah. want to be someone who does not feel remorse for your mistakes. However, having said that, the ego mind the loveless mind is that which both sets us up to do the wrong thing and then punishes us savagely for having done so. So a healthy conscience and healthy remorse means I am in pain because of this. I am in pain to think that I hurt his feelings. I am in pain to think that I sabotaged the relationship. I am in pain to think that I behaved irresponsibly and lost my job. I am in pain to think I mismanaged my money and lost all of it. These things are painful. But if you go from feeling that to the atonement, that's the spiritual principle. Now, the atonement in Catholicism is confession. In Judaism, the holiest day of the year is the Day of Atonement, the day of atonement, uh, the Yom Kippur. And in 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's this notion of taking a fearless moral inventory and admitting the exact nature of your wrongs. That is the atonement. You have to go through that. Now, what happens then, however, is that it's like a cosmic reset button. And then you do not tarry in the fields of Mm self-hatred. You know, there's a part and there's a a prayer in the Course in Miracles where it it says, I made this mistake because I, I didn't let God lead me. I let God lead me now and I will not feel guilty. For spirit will undo the consequences of my wrong decision. If I, you, you can feel it within yourself. When, you know, I always say to people, it was three days between uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, not eight days. It was 40 years in the desert for the Israelites, not 80 years. In other words, when you're in touch, when you're meditating, when you're praying, when you're doing a serious spiritual with a genuine spiritual path, 
then you have your your tears come and they're a season. And then you realize that you need to be available. God doesn't need you to just stay on the, this endless mea culpa. You you need to get off that cross so that you can get about the work of being the person he needs you to be now. Maybe I was maybe I didn't have it together then, but I need to have it together now and next time out I'm going to get it right. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that as we're going through these processes, it's it's an evolution. Everyone has their own way of, of these things unfolding. How can we take these spiritual principles and know that we're going in the right direction? Because for someone, maybe the atonement uh, doesn't happen on their first try, but it's it's more of, a, of an evolution. How can what does this all look like? Well, you know, that's why I, I wrote, you know, the chapter on Buddha and the chapter on Jesus and the chapter on Moses. Um, we have um, Jessica these days. There's too much what I call share graphic spirituality. Um, people taking nice spiritual lines and making a share graphic about it and thinking they're on a spiritual path. A spiritual path is deeper than that. And I think the higher consciousness community deserves sometimes some of the criticism we get as keeping it way too superficial. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a student of A Course in Miracles. Uh, the course is not for everyone. Um, if it's for you, you know it. But it's, it's rigorous. You know, it's like, it's like you can't, if you want to work out your body, you have to actually go to the gym. You actually have to do this work. So in The Course in Miracles, for instance, there are 365 days Uh, one for every day of the year, an exercise. And these exercises are like mantras. And just like you, through doing physical exercise, train your physical muscles. Through spiritual exercise, you train your, your attitudinal muscles so that you train yourself to be forgiving. You train yourself to atone. And you need a path to do this. So, you know, I, I, whether it's A Course in Miracles or any other serious spiritual practice, only a serious spiritual practice is enough to take you into the actual changes you need to make. Um, it, it might not even be labeled spiritual. It might be all secular language, but it's going in and doing the deep work. And what a lot of people call the deep work these days is not the deep work. Right. When we're in our suffering and we want to begin to listen. We finally decide, okay, I'm not going to numb myself anymore. I'm going to sit with this pain and I'm going to discover what it means and why it's here. What, how can we set, set the stage to get those answers? I think there are three things that are extremely important. Um, first of all, giving yourself permission. Um, not make yourself wrong for this. Know that this is a very holy experience. It's part of your journey. It's part of your dark night of the soul to honor yourself for that. And to hopefully have people around you who can honor it too. Uh, stock up on, on bubble baths, stock up on uh, candles, stock up on the things that will really uh, support you in moving through this period in a holy way. Uh, the second thing is a serious path of prayer and meditation. Uh, go to whatever those lectures are. Go to whatever those meetings are. Um, check them out. Is it Buddhist? Is it Kabbalah? Is it Course in Miracles? Is it mystical Christianity? Uh, is it AA? Whatever. Go. Participate. And 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 then the third one is there, there might be a, a therapist. There might be some kind of person who is hopefully not giving you meds as just a way to bypass it, but is really, you know, if you need that, other spirit, serious spiritual support or psychological support. 
of someone who is going to support you in doing the work you need to do in terms of atoning for your own mistakes, forgiving others for theirs, and grieving um, adequately and appropriately the people that you've lost as a way of, you know, the fact that I've lost so many people has made me appreciate the people that are in my life now. I have a, because so many people I love have died, I have a visceral realization that this, this ride is temporary. Suck the juice out of every day. And this is, you know, I've learned in my own life because of these dark, painful times, not to take life for granted, not to take love for granted, not to treat life like a joke, because it's not a joke, uh, to honor other people's feelings. And it takes time to work through all these things in your mind. But when you have a commitment, I will not distract myself. I will not numb myself. I will think deeply on these things, cry all the tears that need to be cried, as I do. Then you do make it through to your own piece of nirvana, your own resurrection, your own promised land, your own self-actualization. And you find on the other side of these times, you're, you're a better person, you're a wiser person, and your life experience is, is different accordingly. There's something I'm really curious about. It will, I'll start with something I really respect about you, Marian. I've seen, as an outsider, I've seen your work, and you have a huge audience, and you know your books have done very well. Uh, but what I find so amazing about you is that you don't only speak to your crowd. You have the courage to go out and speak to a, a bigger crowd, a crowd that might not have read your book. You tend to have just a lot of courage when it comes to speaking out about things that you believe in. Where does that courage come from? And what advice do you have for us to be able to elicit that kind of courage? Well, you know, it's interesting. I First of all, I don't see it as courage, but I, I, I will tell you why in a moment. Yeah. The questions that you've been asking me here, right? I think the our, our crowd, whatever this you want to call us, ha, has developed this kind of in, inward mentality. We stay among ourselves only. And I think that that is irresponsible because I think that spiritual seeking delivers you to the most serious conversation for the world, not just for your pain or my pain. So I think those of us who are seekers of higher consciousness are the last people who should be sitting out the great questions of our day. We have something to contribute. Well, why do we have environmental breakdown? Because we're unconscious. We're irreverent towards the earth. Why do we have out-of-control uh, terrorism? Because in many, to a large extent, because we've been unconscious. We have been irreverent about life. So I don't think it's courageous to speak. I think it's simply responsible. And I think it's irresponsible to keep this this conversation only among ourselves. I, I agree. And what do you do, though, of, of when you feel paralyzed with fear? I mean, there's people who they want to speak out, but they get this real physical fear of, and I think it's just, it's a, part of it is human nature of standing up and being scared to be crucified. Well, well, what we should be afraid of is what's going to happen to the entire planet, including you and me, if we don't speak up. This is getting childish. And I think that that in our community, we do too much coddling. And, mm-hmm. you know, we too much worried about, well, what about my audience? What if they feel too much shame? What if people feel paralyzed? We've, we've got to stop with that little girl stuff. You know, where there is love, there cannot be fear. Love is to fear what light is to darkness. 
And when there's light, there cannot be darkness. And when there's love, there cannot be fear. You know, and I, I you know, I understand the, the fear. You know, I understand you go out there and the press is going to make fun of you and people are going to criticize you and say awful things about you. Who cares? I mean, really, girls care about stuff like that. Women do not. And I, and I think that when you look at the, we are in a very serious time in history. Did abolitionists, I mean, they, they knew that there was risk. Did women suffragettes not go out? They knew there was risk. So what there's risk? You know, Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. You and I live in a country where, and you and I, and your audience, and we know this, What's the risk? They're going to make fun of you. They're, may, they, they're, they're going to throw tomatoes at you. There are people in this world for whom the risk is they are going to shoot you. Mm-hmm. So we have to, or beat you or throw acid in your face. So you and I as American women need to get over this and know that we, we are speaking not only for ourselves, but for women all over the world who are not allowed to speak up. So good. Thank you, Marianne. I, I feel like I, I feel like people are hearing your rallying cry. Very. You know, I want to tell you something, Jessica. American women should be, and that includes everybody listening to your podcast, should be a moral force on this planet. That's the world I want to see. I want to see where there are things that go on in the world, and people could actually believe, and rightfully so. We don't have to worry about it. We know American women will do something. Because we have so much power, but we're not using it. We have power politically. We have power financially. We have the power to make noise. We have the power to create a buzz. We have the power to create a new conversation. And when, when you feel, it, it's not courageous, but it's meaningful to feel called to that. Mm-hmm. And there is simply, you cannot be happy if you stay crouched in this little box, this narrow confines of, who am I? I'm scared. I'm paralyzed. Just there is a level of which... You know, sometimes just stop it. Absolutely. It's so it, it's so great that we're having this conversation because uh, this week I got into an argument with a friend because I was um, speaking out about different political issues. And she was saying that she was saying that when she looked at social media, she feels like it's not the place to be political and that people should um, focus on if people focused on love and what they could do in their community instead of criticizing um, what they see that's wrong in the world, that the world would be a better place. And I disagreed with her. And I said, one of the things that makes this country so great is the ability to be able to speak up to make those changes. Now, I think there's there's a little bit of of truth. And I, I understand what she's saying, because we learn about the power of focusing on what we want. But we can't let it kind of whitewash our whole reality where we're not actually living in a real reality. Well, there's a difference between looking at something and dwelling on something. You don't want to dwell on it. But if you don't look, you're not transcending or transforming anything. You're just in denial. Mm -hmm. And history simply does not prove your friend correct. And this goes back to your point earlier, which is the importance of beginning to take action. That's when we begin to have that hope instead of dwelling on simply the problem. Absolutely. Get into the solution, as they say in AA. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Marion, I have a few questions that I like to ask everybody who's new to the show. Um, 
The first question that I ask everyone that I love, um, and we've been talking about this, but the question is, can you share something in your life that at the time seemed horrible, but ended up becoming one of the greatest blessings in your life? Well, I would say that period of great pain when I was in my late 20s, that was, you know, what would classically be called the nervous breakdown, but after which, and I talk about it in the book, after which I, I, I felt on the path to a whole other life. And Mm-hmm. At the time, a friend said to me, one day you will look back on this as having been a good year. And I couldn't imagine that that was true, but I see it now as having been the year I needed. Great. My next question is, what's something that no one would know about you unless they went to middle school with you? So oh, like okay. middle school, Marianne Williamson. Oh, um, that I was a cheerleader. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, I was truly. In fact, I have two very close friends. Um, three. I have friends. I'm still close friends with uh, uh, a few girls from that time. And when I go back to Houston, we all get together. Yeah, I mean, we all. You know, there's something we all. <clears throat> I remember reaching the age <clears throat> where I said to myself, "Anybody who meets me after this point will not have known me as a child." There is something very special about people who knew you in middle school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, and what is something that you do when you really feel like you just need to have some fun? Like, what's your fun go-to? You know, I may, because I have to spend so much time out in public, and also maybe because I'm a Cancerian, <laughs> my idea of a good time is being home. Yes, love that. Being at home with people I love. And then the final question which is my favorite question. I think it gives you people an insight into your personality. If you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? So I'd be a bird because I could fly. Any no. type of bird? I think an eagle would be my style. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I think that is a great fit, a beautiful eagle. Well, um, Marianne, so your, your book is out now, Tears to Triumph. Where can people pick it up? Um, you can get it uh, at most bookstores. You can get it on Amazon.com. Uh, you can re- find out more at Marianne.com. Uh, you know, the usual places where books are sold. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, Jessica, thank you, honey, so much. And congratulations on the work you do. Congratulations.